Hello fellow Blue Earther and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm Lauren Espit and my guest today is Hugo Tycombe, best known for leading the ocean campaigning charity Surfers Against Sewage. Hugo tells me what he's going to be discussing at this year's Blue Earth Summit, plus more about his newest adventure, Leading Oceana, an organisation dedicated to protecting and restoring the world's oceans on a global scale. We also discuss what the UK can do to truly commit to reducing emissions. Hi Hugo, it's lovely to have you on the pod today. Happy to be here. We are weeks away from the Blue Earth Summit. What will you be talking about this year? Well, look, I've been uh, campaigning around the ocean for uh, a decade and a half now. And so it probably doesn't come as any surprise to anyone listening that I'm going to be talking about the ocean emergency, the pressures that our, our ocean is currently facing, the action that needs to happen, but also the hope that's out there about how we can achieve success, how we have achieved success, and how uh, the world mustn't spiral into despair which will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we need to um, remind people of that. And I'm looking forward to talking at the event to, uh, to hopefully inspire and take people on a new journey of, of action and hope this, this decade. When I started uh, researching about Surfers Against Sewage, I was amazed to find out that it actually was set up in uh, 1990. So what was happening in the decades before you took over? Well, it, it's gone through several iterations, Surface Against Sewage. So I remember it um, from those very early days. And my first contact was actually in 1991. A very different organization in many ways back then. Um, a single issue campaign group set up to challenge water companies, particularly in the Southwest, um, which was its first sort of decade of work. And thankfully, there was a lot of European legislation coming in that also helped force change in that decade. In the 2000s, it started to morph into into something else, and I took over in 2008 to uh, to give it a new lease of life. Um, it was about to have its door shut. It was about to be wound up, and I came in with charity experience as an environmentalist and then surfer to set it up on a new trajectory on climate, plastics, on water quality again, to build a community, and to hopefully become what's now recognised as one of the country's leading marine conservation and campaigning forces, winning legislation, winning hearts and minds around the country and creating a big impact for our ocean now and for the future. I noticed on your website, it says that um, Surface Against Sewage um, has an ambition for the UK to be net zero by 2030. And for those who might not be up to speed with terminology around climate change, what does that mean? Well, yeah, look, that's a really good question. And at the moment, um, net zero is about, of course, the absolute reductions you can make in terms of carbon emissions, um, but also net zero encapsulates offsets and other ways of, of hopefully mitigating the emissions that you can't achieve. The latter is the less desirable part of that equation. And there's a big debate around the benefits and pros and cons of offsets. And the focus must always be on the reductions of emissions. And that's what we're doing here at our headquarters in Cornwall, um, solar panels for the roof, electric van, the reductions we can make on all of the appliances and things this office uses. And so, you know, that's in the sort of in the everyday language rather than the sort of the the language of scope one and scope two and, and other things that tend to give people the the sort of boredom of the space. But the, the real thing is, it's very black and white. It's like, how do we reduce the amount of carbon dioxide 
that we're emitting as an organization? And then nationally, how do we push for that and call for that in a very ambitious timescale? This government, this country has a legal obligation um, under the Paris Agreement on on action on on climate change. And we need to push for that further and faster. Um, We need to make sure that this country truly is committed to reducing emissions, not reopening fracking not exploring the North Sea for oil and gas, not doubling down on fossil fuels, but actually investing in uh, offshore and onshore green energy, solar and wind, about insulating houses, about changing the system around us that can truly have the long-term gains we need, not looking at the short-term reaction to the current um, energy crisis, which you know, even looking for for more oil and gas is not gonna not gonna help with those those bills anyway. That's a fool's lantern. Uh, no matter who's who's uh, leading the way with it, we need to make sure we're looking at the progressive, practical, and proven technologies that can help us achieve our net zero or zero ambitions. We should really call them in terms of carbon emissions. And we know that the offshore wind is already one of the cheapest forms, if not the cheapest form of energy. You know, we know that 50 billion pounds could potentially install enough of those turbines to power all of our houses. Now, we've just given the energy industry 100 billion or more to line their own pockets. The world is in a, in a strange place in decision making. Just going back to um, what you were saying about Surfers Against Sewage as a charity, uh, but also, I guess, as a, as a business. Last year, you talked about at, at the summit that you really felt that business was the best vehicle for change in the next decade. Do you still think that? One of the best vehicles for change. Business operates in a policy and regulatory framework and needs to. I mean, contrary to what this government is currently proposing, which is a a massive deregulation agenda, business needs a level playing field and it needs to know what it can and can't do. And unless it's pushed strongly to do that, ultimately the, the decisions they'll make will be based around financial gain. So we need to make sure that they are um, strongly regulated by good laws um, and policy that that delivers the, the changes we need to see. And that's where we, we always see the biggest wins for the environment. So look, we, we see business as a force for good. And we've seen an amazing, amazing commitment from, from Patagonia just this week on, on having only our planet, Planet Ocean, as the, their, their shareholder and all of the profits going back into it. Simultaneously, we see a time when, when our, our government is, is prioritizing fossil fuels, where our government is taking away any restrictions on bankers' bonuses that were part of the cause of the last financial crash. We see a government that is, um, is not necessarily in favor of the green growth agenda. And so we've got to be careful about what businesses now prevail, because if the businesses that are currently being favoured are continued um, to be sort of platform, then business won't be the, the driver for change, and particularly if the fossil fuel um, industry is supported as it is, because, you know, all other businesses operate within, within that economic and sort of carbon model. So I do believe business has a strong potential to drive the changes we need. And we see that again from Patagonia and others, Finisterre, you know, great brands that are doing really good things. But we've also got to be, be careful because the changes we need to see are huge and will impact all of our lives and things that we do today. We may need to quickly accept we won't be able to do 
tomorrow or in the future. And we've seen the dress rehearsal with the pandemic. We've seen the changes that brought. But um, let's not be complacent and think that the businesses that provide everything that we have today can carry on as they are. Just as back when oil replaced whale oil, we saw that the whaling industry had to go out of business. There wasn't a, a good model to say, no, let's carry on getting that blubber and lighting our streets with it and creating products out of it. It was like, this just has to end. And sure, there are, there are caveats to that, but ultimately it had to end. So there wasn't a good whaling business. There wasn't a whaling business that everyone thought, oh, no, this is, this is the acceptable face of whaling. This is how I get my whalings, whale products. So let's be like really clear that some businesses have to go out of business, full stop, has to happen. Do you think that there are business models that can truly be 100% sustainable? No, it's a, it's a, it's a fallacy. So let's, let's be honest, there is always an impact. There's an impact to this conversation. We're burning energy as we, we do it. We're using up data space in a cloud somewhere. You know, there's, there's lots of things that, that mean that this isn't a, a sort of a, a neutral part of our business, but we can do business better and we can encourage people to do that because, you know, ultimately the world will still need to do business. We just have to accept it can't be zero impact and we need to create the circularity and systems that can support that. So, so yeah, you know, it's an exciting time of change. This is a new revolution. This is a new green and blue revolution that, that will take us to a space, a, a, a whole new world that, you know, might only be, you know, fully operational long after I'm, I'm gone. You'll probably, you'll probably still be around. (laughs) But, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, an exciting time. There are big opportunities and challenges with it. And, uh, you know, it's exciting to see businesses, you know, starting to recognize the sort of triple bottom line and to have a a stronger focus on people, planet and, and of course, you know, they, they want to be profitable. Although we see far too many businesses making far too much money. You talk about radical change. Do you think your move to Oceana is strategic in in that change that you hope to see in the next decade? Look, this is absolutely a a strategic move from my point of view. This is a global organization working on you know, some of the biggest issues in the world, industrial practices that are destroying our ocean and fish populations on, of course, plastic pollution. They still work on on all sorts of big issues, uh, the climate emergency. And I'm going to be part of a, a bigger team and leading a bigger team when I when I moved there in November. Very excited about it. I've just come back from a big global meeting, hugely influential people, hugely committed to um, this agenda and uh, restoring um, our ocean. Um, and that's what we need to do. I've had a, an incredible time leading Surface Against Sewage and hopefully led a decade and a half of transformational change, um, not just building the team here from a, from three people to soon to be 40 people, um, from a handful of volunteers to 150,000 volunteers a year, from a, an organization that wasn't influencing policy and legislation change to one that's won and delivered policy and legislation across a range of issues. So I'm incredibly proud of what I've done, but have had a long-held appetite to work on some of the even bigger issues with an even bigger team of some of the hardcore campaigners from around the world. That's my DNA completely. So looking forward to it and hopefully shaking up a few uh, few of these issues um, even further in the UK. I know surfers against sewage, you know, from afar. I've lived down in Falmouth. I've seen your stalls at, you know, festivals and all the right places where you can reach out to the right people. But I don't know Oceana at all. So how do they compare in terms of um, 
resources available to them to make change. And I guess Surfers Against Sewage has a huge volunteer base to create change from a grassroots level, um, you know, educating. So how does Oceana compare to that? Well, look, it's a really good observation. And they're sort of two slightly different models which overlap in in, in what would you know, call our sort of democratically elected parliaments sort of around the world and maybe sometimes they're less democratically elected parliaments around the world. So SAS is, is predominantly a grassroots organisation, volunteers, citizen scientists, activists on the ground whose voices are connected and amplified through what we do in campaigns here to, to sort of policy moments. And that can have a, a you know, a big impact on, on decision makers. Oceana is a policy and legislation focused organization looking for those policy changes with distinct teams of, of experts working on the outside and the inside to, uh, to, to change uh, policy and legislation around the world to protect our ocean and ocean life. And both organizations have different resources and contacts and networks to be able to do that. Um, they're both part of what I would call the toolkit to, uh, to ocean conservation and campaigning, which, you know, each tool is different as a hammer is different to a saw. You know, y- you have different organizations that do different things, but they're all needed at certain times of, of campaigning. So, you know, I'm a big fan of both, both models. Um, and um, looking forward to working with the sort of experts on the sort of policy and legislation front to uh, to drive hopefully what we would see as a sort of even bigger change over the coming decade. How long does it take policy to change on the level that you will be working at? There's not a there's not a one a one answer to that a singular answer to that it it can vary and it can vary in terms of changing policy and then the implementation of that policy so each issue each bit of change that's created needs careful vigilance not just in the run up to trying to change that policy but also in the implementation of it because there are very good policies and very good laws in this country that may not necessarily be implemented to protect our ocean and I take you know what I currently do at the moment as an example of that. Um, with the water quality campaigns, that there are laws that were set in statute books back in 1991 that still aren't adhered to or enforced properly to hold the water industry to account. So, you know, why that is, is, is sort of complex, but it's not just about the change, it's about enforcing and ensuring the change happens. So, yeah, it can take years, um, it can take decades. I mean, people have an appetite now and, and they, they, they love social media and anyone can commentate and make out that they're, they're part of a movement. Anyone can, can make statements quickly. Anyone can have an expectation overnight and post a, a nicely, nicely crafted graphic on Twitter, Instagram or TikTok. But actually driving that change takes long-term commitment. This isn't about making a, a flash-in-the-pan appearance on any of these social media channels. This isn't about a, a one-time statement. This is about long, drawn-out debate and negotiation. And we need that to speed up. The, the process is not quick enough. And I'll take an example of the World Trade Organization and fishery subsidies. It's taken... 30 years for them to get to a very, very minor bit of progress on that, um, on fishery subsidies, which basically, in, in short, take away, take away subsidies when, when a fish population has actually already collapsed. Basically, we can fish it till it's dead. And then once it's dead, we can, we can then, we'll take away the subsidy. So not actually that, that good at, at protecting those fish populations. So, you know, these things can take too long. And often the results can be too weak. And so it's the organizations like Oceana 
like SAS uh, and others around the world. People will be fans of Sea Shepherd, the Paul Watson, the newly Paul, founded Paul Watson Foundation and other, other organizations around the world to keep pushing. And we all know we need to go further and faster and be more ambitious in what we want to deliver because every metric, every metric is saying that we're in, in trouble from a, from a nature and biodiversity perspective. Bringing it um, closer to home, you're down in Cornwall and I'm on the Somerset Levels um, near Glastonbury. In the 30 years that Surface Against Sewage has been operating, are things better in our waterways or have they recently got worse? Because to my knowledge, in the last 12 months, I guess, since I've been involved with the Blue Earth Summit, I follow a lot more people who do really good work and I'm almost so much more aware of it you know I I go swimming outdoors almost every day um, and I always check the map and I do actually swim in red zones when it says that sewage is being pumping because touch wood 10 years to the day I've not been sick (laughs) there are so many more people who are aware of it now and sometimes it's hard to gauge whether things are actually getting better or getting worse because there seems to be much more coverage of dirty water or clean water that's a lot to unpack there Sorry. <laughs> I'm back because, you know, part of that is your own sensitization to the space since you took on a new job, which is suddenly you, your job, you're paid to be interested and you need to pay attention to it. So there's that. There's the fact that organizations like SAS has, has blown the, 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 the lid on, on this issue in particular around water quality and that campaign and that data that all of those papers and everyone's referring to now is something that we've, we've been working on for over a decade now and have got to the space where it's daily sort of news. And so we, we've worked very hard on making sure the water industry is held to account. There's the other thing, the, the, the sort of central part to it is that we campaign to get access to that data. And there's more data in the space now. The water companies have to report on their sewage spills. And that didn't happen before. So the water companies were doing this in 1991, 92, 93, 94, 95, right through to where we are now. But no one had called them out on the data for it. So they could just get away with it. It was like, yeah, we've done everything we need to do. There's no problem. But actually, they were doing this thing. And so so actually, we've we've exposed them. This has been a big bit of investigative campaigning there's been a big bit of sort of a big lift in terms of technology and data sharing and it's been a really big lift in terms of the public communications around it and so it has got worse from some angles there's more people there's more pressure on a a, a underinvested sewage system the water industry is is underfunded or cut funding by about 20 percent over the last 10 or 15 years into sewage infrastructure our waterways, they've declined in health over this time. Just 14% meet good ecological status. We're seeing more sewage going back into our coastline. So there's lots of different angles you can take it from. But the, the one angle you need to remind yourself on it is you've got an industry that's made about £72 billion in dividends since privatization. They've invested, I think, in the region of $5 billion in sewage infrastructure. And uh, they're getting away with polluting each and every day and claiming that they don't have the money sometimes to be able to fix it. And they do have the money to fix it. And sadly, it will have to come out of the, the foreign holiday fund and swimming pool fund of their chief executives and shareholders. And it shouldn't be coming out of the pocket of everyday taxpayers in the UK. What do you think goes on in the mind of somebody who's at the crossroads of deciding which side of the line 
they stand on when it comes to working for a company that's creating damage or part of the problem or somebody like yourself who is campaigning and part of the solution and full of hope? I would say ask questions. Every company will today presents itself. You know, every company will present itself as a, a values-based purposeful company, you know, and, and, you know, that's from McDonald's through to Coca-Cola. Every, you know, every, every single one will, 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 will adopt the lexicon and narrative of charities to um, sanitize themselves. And you've got to understand, and I know lots of people who work for big companies and they believe, they believe in the gospel of, of that company. And they really have to ask the right questions and challenge from the inside too if they decide to be on, on that side of the fence. Don't forget that each and every business is going to dress themselves up in, in, in the right clothing. And you know, purpose, I mean, every, every company has a purpose and they're going to try and make that purpose sound good you know i don't know what i don't know what mcdonald's is but it's probably something about feeding you know feeding the world you know i mean every every company has purpose so let's not get confused about purpose the word purpose has been co-opted now and you know it, it is what what is the purpose and is the purpose really good and is it good enough in this day and age not that they've that anyone just any company goes right okay let's let's work out this purpose it sounds pretty good environmentally socially you know is it good you know does it, can we make it fit for people and planet you know everyone can do that what would your advice be to the generation who are studying gcse's a level and if they're lucky enough you know got access to higher education to i guess become involved and you know you were saying earlier i've been part of blue earth summit and therefore i'm paid to have an interest I would agree with that to a certain extent, but having been connected to open water spaces for 10 years, I would also think that there is a personal emotional investment there. If you are suddenly, you know, learning about sustainability as part of a GCSE module or something, but you don't actually know how to practically engage with things in the real world because you're too young or you just haven't had the access or you haven't been surrounding yourself with the right people how how can people start being a part of this movement yeah look i think it's i think it's an interesting question let, let, let me just just come back to the point about your role i think the point was is you, you it was not your previous passion but over the past year you had become more sensitized to it since you had started with blue earth so that was that was the point so it wasn't a criticism just to uh, but you know of course you know you would have been hired because of your own interest too um, but I think because because you've become more and more aware of these things, you know, that will always be part of it when people are, they, they have an interest, whether it's with a paid role or another role, you know, somebody might become a trustee of a charity and suddenly go, oh, I, I didn't realize so much was happening in X space on people or planetary issues. So, you know, it's it's about, you know, where we, where we place ourselves in the sort of learning journey. We're all learning the whole time. With young people, and I, I've got a 14-year-old son called Darwin, and I sort of think about his generation and, you know, and, and people older and sort of younger than him. I was on the train um, going up to London the other day and some people were sat next to me. And I heard sort of what maybe I phrase almost as sort of celebratory doom, doomism from the, the, the young university students next to me. It's like, well, well, what can we do now? Like our, our future's like being robbed. So we may as well just have a good, good time. Let's go out and sort of party. And like, I understand that concept. I think one of the biggest things I would say to young people in terms of getting interested is don't be fooled by 
the establishment and people who, who want your voice and want you as part of their branding texture. It's not a thing. It's not a thing to think that you should be the ones who come along and save the world. It shouldn't be you who props up the current business model that, that, that then ruins your own future. And so I think the important thing is, is how do you use your voice to call for change now? You know, we, we know that, that the rate of change, you know, we're seeing it accelerate, needs leaders now to make the changes to preserve that future. And we need, you know, we need a, you know, a future generations bill that will actually preserve our kids and their grandkids and beyond that, their future. Um, currently, all bills are focused about maximizing the return for this generation and the opportunities we have. And, you know, we have to be in a space where where things change to, to say that we can't have it all now. And who knows what that will look like in a few years? Who knows whether we'll be able to fly around the world or on short hop sort of flights so easily? Who knows whether we'll be able to eat industrially farmed salmon each and every day who knows whether we'll be able to consume as many surfboards as we currently consume as a as a surfing community so all of those things you know are for grabs and it's important that young people realize that their voice counts and they should be calling for change now they shouldn't be told that in the future when they are leaders they can then create the change that the world needs that is the biggest cop out that is what all leaders and all businesses want to say oh young people they'll come along and fix the mess we've made you know it's really easy it's a baton passing of responsibility that is the biggest hoax out there you know we need young people of course to be prepared for their own leadership but they need now to be told and understand that they can challenge business leaders and governments and politicians to act as fast as they can. And we've seen great examples of that with Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for the Future movement. We see young people rising up and really showing their discontent because people who probably are my age and older don't understand they've lived through the age of abundance when they can have whatever they want, whenever they want on tap. And that age cannot carry on forever. We're living on a finite planet. No one's created a circular system that delivers that. And even some of the future businesses, you know, let's put the challenge out there. You can't necessarily dig up all of the Democratic Democratic Republic of Congo to, to make batteries for, for electric vehicles for the, the wealthiest in society. You know, how do we approach these things and how do we create a, a, a new future that is, is really sustainable? And we need young people to keep rising up um, and keep voicing their concerns. So I'm quite disappointed, actually, when I look through my education history and what was available for me to study at school that actually all the things I've become interested in you know in terms of blue health green health sustainability climate change those things were not embedded in my education at any point um, and actually if I was probably to really delve into the curriculum would not it would not be any different I mean I think that's changing you know I, I do you know that is changing um, you know in terms of the availability of different specialisms to young people and organizations you know not not least surface against sewage are doing a good job of pushing that into the, the mainstream agenda the ocean and climate emergency the plastic emergency all of those things but, but there are more opportunities now and you know those are partly in response to the emergency that that's out there that you know people are people are on a have new opportunities but let's also not forget that it's 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 easy it's easy just to think it's about sort of one discipline the truth is this will take all disciplines coming together to create change you know you need we need 
finance experts who are going to support organizations and run organizations that are going to deliver change. We need communications experts that are going to deliver the right messaging. We need scientists. We need engineers. We need, you know, doctors who are going to be on the front line of a changing climate and diseases that weren't previously, you know, in, in certain regions of the world, you know, emerging. So we need all of the expertise and they can all be looked at through a climate prism too and a changing world prism because the disciplines no matter what you do can be applied to a, a, a an evolving world um, so I, I agree that there are things that you know that still need to come on to the curriculum but at the same time you know the core basis of what we do the mass the languages the education that, that you and I might have been more familiar with are still fundamentally important in terms of achieving the changes we want to see. And my final question, Hugo, is what do you do to relax? I never relax. <laughs> That's what my wife would say, never, ever. I find it unrelaxing to be relaxed. Look, I do. Like, I go surfing with, my, with our son Darwin um, a lot but when I can, um, when I'm not working which I love. I love swimming. I love being in the sea, by the sea, you know, all of those things. An occasional beer, um, <laughs> all of that jazz. But uh, yeah, you know, the, the ocean is, is, is my, my thing and will always be now. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.